0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis. Chapter 7, Light and Shade. Part 2. What an answer, by the by, Wyvern was to those who derive all the ills of society from economics. For money had nothing to do with its class system. It was not, thank heaven, the boys with threadbare coats who became punts, nor the boys with plenty of pocket money who became bloods. According to some theorists, therefore, it ought to have been entirely free from bourgeois vulgarities and iniquities. Yet I have ever seen a community so competitive, so full of snobbery and flunkeyism, a ruling class so selfish and so class-conscious or a proletariat so fawning, so lacking in all solidarity and sense of corporate honor. But perhaps one hardly needs to cite experience for a truth so obvious a priori. As Aristotle remarked, men do not become dictators in order to keep warm. If a ruling class has some other source of strength, why need it bother about money? Most of what it wants will be pressed upon it by emulous flatterers. The rest can be taken by force." There were two blessings at Wyvern that wore no disguise. One of them was my form master, Smugy, as we called him. I spelled the name so as to ensure the right pronunciation. The first syllable should rhyme exactly with fugue, though the Wyvernian spelling was S-M-U-G-Y. Except at oldies, I had been fortunate in my teachers ever since I was born. But Smugy was beyond expectation, beyond hope, He was a gray head with large spectacles and a wide mouth, which combined to give him a frog-like expression. But nothing could be less frog-like than his voice. He was honey-tongued. Every verse he read turned into music on his lips, something midway between speech and song. It is not the only good way of reading verse, but it is the way to enchant boys. More dramatic and less rhythmical ways can be learned later. HE FIRST TAUGHT ME THE RIGHT SENSUALITY OF POETRY, HOW IT SHOULD BE SAVORED AND MOUTHED IN SOLITUDE. OF MILTON'S, THRONES, DOMINATIONS, PRINCEDOMS, VIRTUES, POWERS, HE SAID, THAT LINE MADE ME HAPPY FOR A WEEK. IT WAS NOT THE SORT OF THING I HAD HEARD ANYONE SAY BEFORE, NOR HAD I EVER MET BEFORE PERFECT COURTESY IN A TEACHER. IT HAD NOTHING TO DO WITH SOFTNESS. SMUGI COULD BE VERY SEVERE but it was the severity of a judge, weighty and measured, without taunting. He never yet no villain ye, ni said, in all his life unto no manner white. He had a difficult team to drive, for our form consisted partly of youngsters, new bugs with scholarships, starting there like myself, and partly of veterans who had arrived there at the end of their slow journey up the school. He made us a unity by his good manners. He always addressed us as gentlemen, and the possibility of behaving otherwise seemed thus to be ruled out from the beginning. And in that room, at least, the distinction between fags and bloods never raised its head. On a hot day, when he had given us permission to remove our coats, he asked our permission before removing his gown. Once for bad work I was sent by him to the headmaster to be threatened and rated. The headmaster misunderstood Smeuge's report, and thought there had been some complaint about my manners. Afterward, Smeuge got wind of the head's actual words, and at once corrected the mistake, drawing me aside, and saying, "'There has been some curious misunderstanding. I said nothing of the sort about you. You will have to be whipped if you don't do better at your Greek grammar next week. But naturally, that has nothing to do with your manners or mine.'" The idea that the tone of conversation between one gentleman and another should be altered by a flogging, any more than by a duel, was ridiculous. His manner was perfect. No familiarity, no hostility, no threadbare humor, mutual respect, decorum. Never let us live without Amusia, was one of his favorite maxims. Amusia, the absence of the muses. And he knew, as Spencer knew, that courtesy was of the muses. Thus, even had he taught us nothing else, to be in Smugi's form was to be in a measure ennobled. Amidst all the banal ambition and flashy splendors of school life, he stood as a permanent reminder of things more gracious, more humane, larger, and cooler. But his teaching, in the narrower sense, was equally good. He could enchant but he could also analyze. An idiom or a textual crux, once expounded by Smugy, became clear as day. He made us feel that the scholar's demand for accuracy was not merely pedantic, still less an arbitrary moral discipline, but rather a niceness, a delicacy, to lack which argued a gross and swainish disposition. I began to see that the reader who misses syntactical points in a poem is missing aesthetic points as well. In those days, a boy on the classical side officially did almost nothing but classics. I think this was wise. The greatest service we can do to education today is to teach fewer subjects. No one has time to do more than a very few things well before he is 20. And when we force a boy to be a mediocrity in a dozen subjects, we destroy his standards, perhaps for life. Smugi taught us Latin and Greek, but everything else came in incidentally. The books I liked best under his teaching were Horace's Odes, Aeneid the Fourth, and Euripides' Bacchae. I had always, in one sense, liked my classical work, but hitherto this had been only the pleasure that everyone feels in mastering a craft. Now I tasted the classics as poetry. Euripides' picture of Dionysus was closely linked in my mind with the whole mood of Mr. Stephen's crock of gold, which I had lately read for the first time with great excitement. Here was something very different from the northernness. Pan and Dionysus lacked the cold, piercing appeal of Odin and Frey. A new quality entered my imagination. Something Mediterranean and volcanic, the orgiastic drumbeat. Orgiastic, but not or not strongly, erotic. It was perhaps unconsciously connected with my growing hatred of the public school orthodoxies and conventions, my desire to break and tear it all. The other undisguised blessing of the call was the gurney. The school library, not only because it was a library, but because it was sanctuary. As the Negro used to become free on touching English soil, so the meanest boy was unfaggable, once he was inside the gurney. It was not, of course, easy to get there. In the winter terms, if you were not on the list for clubs, you had to go out for a run. In summer, you could reach sanctuary of an afternoon only under favorable conditions. You might be put down for clubs, and that excluded you. Or there might be either a house match or a call match, which you were compelled to watch. Thirdly, and most probably, on your way to the gurney, you might be caught and fagged for the whole afternoon. But sometimes one succeeded in running the gauntlet of all these dangers, and then books, silence, leisure, the distant sound of bat and ball, oh, the brave music of a distant drum, bees buzzing at the open window, and freedom. In the gurney I found Corpus Poeticum Boreal, and tried, vainly but happily, to hammer out the originals from the translation at the bottom of the page. There, too, I found Milton, and Yeats, and a book on Celtic mythology, which soon became, if not a rival, yet a humble companion to Norse. That did me good. To enjoy two mythologies, or three, now that I had begun to love the Greek, fully aware of their differing flavors, is a balancing thing, and makes for Catholicity. I felt keenly the difference between the stony and fiery sublimity of Asgard, the green, leafy, amorous and elusive world of Kruashan and the Red Branch and Tirnan Og, the harder, more defiant, sun-bright beauty of Olympus. I began, presumably in the holidays, an epic on Kushulan, and another on Finn, in English hexameters and in Fourteeners, respectively. Luckily, they were abandoned before these eager and vulgar meters had time to spoil my ear. But the northernness still came first and the only work I completed at this time was a tragedy, Norse in subject and Greek in form. It was called Loki Bound and was as classical as any humanist could have desired with Prologos, Parodos, Episodia, Stasima, Exodos, stichomythia, and, of course, one passage in Trochaic Septenariae with rhyme. I never enjoyed anything more. The content is significant. My Loki was not merely malicious. He was against Odin because Odin had created a world, though Loki had clearly warned him that this was a wanton cruelty. Why should creatures have the burden of existence forced on them without their consent? The main contrast in my play was between the sad wisdom of Loki and the brutal orthodoxy of Thor. Odin was partly sympathetic. He could at least see what Loki meant, and there had been old friendship between those two before cosmic politics forced them apart. Thor was the real villain. Thor with his hammer and his threats, who was always egging Odin on against Loki, and always complaining that Loki did not sufficiently respect the major gods. To which Loki replied, I pay respect to wisdom, not to strength. Thor was, in fact the symbol of the bloods, though I see that more clearly now than I did at the time. Loki was a projection of myself. He voiced that sense of priggish superiority whereby I was, unfortunately, beginning to compensate myself for my unhappiness. The other feature in Loki Bound, which may be worth commenting on, is the pessimism. I was at this time living, like so many atheists or anti-theists, in a whirl of contradictions. I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry with God for not existing. I was equally angry with Him for creating a world. How far was this pessimism, this desire not to have been, sincere? Well, I must confess that this desire quite slipped out of my mind during the seconds when I was covered by the Wild Earl's revolver. By the Chestertonian test, then, the test of man alive, it was not sincere at all. But I am still not convinced by Chesterton's argument. It is true that when a pessimist's life is threatened, he behaves like other men. His impulse to preserve life is stronger than his judgment that life is not worth preserving. But how does this prove that the judgment was insincere, or even erroneous? A man's judgment that whiskey is bad for him is not invalidated by the fact that when the bottle is at hand, he finds desire stronger than reason, and succumbs. Having once tasted life, we are subjected to the impulse of self-preservation. Life, in other words, is as habit-forming as cocaine. What, then? If I still held creation to be a great injustice, I should hold that this impulse to retain life aggravates the injustice. If it is bad to be forced to drink the potion, how does it mend matters that the potion turns out to be an addiction drug? Pessimism cannot be answered so. Thinking as I then thought about the universe, I was reasonable in condemning it. At the same time, I now see that my view was closely connected with a certain lopsidedness of temperament. I had always been more violent in my negative than in my positive demands. Thus, in personal relations, I could forgive much neglect more easily than the least degree of what I regarded as interference. At table... I could forgive much insipidity in my food more easily than the least suspicion of what seemed to me excessive or inappropriate seasoning. In the course of life, I could put up with any amount of monotony far more patiently than even the smallest disturbance, bother, bustle, or what the Scotch call kerfuffle. Never at any age did I clamor to be amused. Always, and at all ages, where I dared, I hotly demanded not to be interrupted, The pessimism, or cowardice, which would prefer non-existence itself to even the mildest unhappiness, was thus merely the generalization of all these pusillanimous preferences. And it remains true that I have, almost all my life, been quite unable to feel that horror of non-entity, of annihilation, which, say, Dr. Johnson felt so strongly. I felt it for the very first time only in 1947, but that was after I had long been reconverted and thus begun to know what life really is and what would have been lost by missing it. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend,